0: Turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 6. Ecclesiastes, not a very uh, Christmassy uh, book, but hopefully we'll understand a few minutes why we're going there. If you've not been at Ecclesiastes in a little while, the, you, you go kind of the middle of the Old Testament. You have the book of Psalms and then Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Um, and again, it may seem like an odd place to go, uh, but I, I hope and believe it'll all make sense. In, in a few minutes. So we're in the second week of our Advent series. And, and the word Advent, if it's a brand new thing to you, it's just from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And, of course, we're talking about the coming, the arrival of Jesus. And in this series, we're looking at the significance of Jesus' birth, uh, but not just what it means to us, not, not just even what it means to the world, but we're trying to make sense of how it fits in the whole story of God's redemption, God's big plan of salvation, where is Jesus' birth in all of that? And I think if we're going to make sense of Jesus' birth, I mean, I mean, the carols we sing, uh, the things we celebrate, the symbols, the the images, all of that stuff. If we're going to make sense of it, we have to be able to answer the why question, and that is, why did Jesus come to the earth? What was His purpose in coming. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes this morning in in a way to kind of continue to set up this big picture as we work our way toward the birth narrative. Um, This morning from the text, with that purpose statement in mind, we're going to answer three questions, actually. How bad is our world, really? What happens when we try to make something of ourselves in it? And what will Jesus do about it? So how bad is our world, really? Uh, What happens when we try to make something of ourselves in it? And what will Jesus do about it? Last week, Pastor Chris set up the series beautifully by looking at creation. And we saw that, that at creation, everything was beautiful and perfect and pristine and orderly. And all of it was there to glorify Christ, who in fact was the agent of creation. Everything that was made was made by him. It was made for him, for his glory. And it was all good. It was all perfect. But, of course, we know that. Our world's not perfect now. We know that, that our lives aren't perfect, our families aren't perfect, and not even our hearts uh, are perfect. And, and it seems like this season, this time of year, uh, really makes that more painfully clear than ever. We see the television commercials this time of year where everyone's laughing and getting along and sitting around the dinner table and just smiling at each other and agreeing with each other and everything buying each other cars. We say, well, that's not how it is in my family. That's not the way it works. When we get together, all those public commercials, and there's some really good ones. I have to have a tissue box next to me on some of these public commercials because they're really, really heart-wrenching. Uh, but we say that, that, you know, everybody living in perfect peace, that's not how it works in my family. Uh, we're too busy arguing over politics and theology and life choices and what's for dinner and for us to get along that famously. And the truth is, you know, we all know our families aren't perfect. And it's no secret that many of us this week have had disappointments and failures and arguments and fights and all of those things. And so it's just kind of the way that it is in this world. And there's a part of this season, and don't get me wrong, I love this season. um, But there's a part of this season that That's particularly difficult. Psychologists say that this time of year sees the highest spike in mental health issues uh, because, you know, we feel this incredible pressure to be happy at every moment. And yet we're not happy at every moment. And so it leads to us feeling guilty and ashamed. Why aren't I happy? Everybody else around me seems to be so happy. What's wrong with me? We feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel like something is wrong with us. We may say, tis the most wonderful time of the year, but that doesn't work when we've been hurt, uh, when we've been rejected, when we just lost a job, when we have just gotten a divorce, when we uh, lost a loved one to death, when we can't stay healthy. Tis the season uh, just doesn't cut it. Well, what can we do about it? I mean, there are no, of course, magic answers. I think we have to start by acknowledging the problem and then going into even deeper why we have the problem we have. And so I said we start by answering the question, how bad is our world really? Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for he comes in vanity and goes in darkness And in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Now, of course, it doesn't take very long to see how depressing uh, this chapter is. Uh, The author says some horrible things. He even goes so far as to say the seemingly heartless thing that we would never expect a person to, to ever come out of a person's lips. And that is that he seems to say that a stillborn child who never sees the sun or the earth or creation is actually better off than we as humans who live because such a child arrives into this world without life and is therefore spared the hopelessness and the pain and the anguish that goes along with living. The stillborn child never has to endure heartache, pain, or struggle with guilt over sin. And again, this this is very heavy stuff. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. You may remember some of the story. Solomon uh, was the son of King David. And when David died, Solomon was anointed king. Um, And Solomon, even though he was young, was probably about 20 years old when he became king. He calls himself in 1 Kings 3 a little child, but he's probably a a late teenager, early 20-something. And he still had a very mature devotion to the Lord and, and a robust love for the Lord. And God appears to him and, and, you know, essentially in a dream and and offers Solomon whatever he wants. And Solomon asks for wisdom and God is so pleased with Solomon that he doesn't ask for the death of his enemies or extreme wealth or power or fame or whatever, that God actually gives him all the things that he doesn't ask for. So he gives him what he does ask for wisdom, but then he gives him everything else. And Solomon uh, is this incredibly wise person. Um, In fact, the wisest person to ever live. But as Solomon got older one of the commands that the Lord had for him is he said, look, do not marry women from the other nations. Now, this was not a racial ethnic thing as much as a spiritual religious thing. And that's because the women of the other nations would draw Solomon away, presumably from the true and living God of Israel, which in fact happened. Solomon married countless women. And toward the end of his life, um, he was in abject despair, had lost fellowship with his God And he writes uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's tried to find satisfaction apart from God in everything under the sun, which is a phrase that appears repeatedly in this book. And at the end, he says, look, it's all vanity. If this is all there is, if this life is all there is, he says, then it would be better if we were never born. Because this life is filled with pain and agony and heartbreak and disappointment. And then we all go to the same place, he says, which means we all die in the end anyway. So... What's the point? Despite every effort imaginable, Solomon cannot alleviate the pain that comes with being separated from God. And so we have this book written by this brilliant scholar, this wise king who is older and richer and more famous and better respected than we are. And he tries everything under the sun to find happiness, again, pleasure and money and the finest food and drink and and sex and creative expression and solitude and ultimately concludes there's nothing that can solve the problem of humanity's brokenness. One scholar, Brent Sandy, writes, the reflections of the sage, sometimes Solomon's referred to as the preacher, the teacher, the sage, unmask the myth of human autonomy and self-sufficiency and drive us in our frailty and inability to find meaning in a crooked world in the creator-creature relationship. So Solomon's very open about his struggles. He, you know, he, he's sometimes actually painfully honest in the, what he's going through. But just in case we say, well, yeah, but Solomon was an exception. And just in case we don't really buy into his experience or all that he's gone through, he presents to us this fictitious person, this hypothetical man who lived in the ancient Near East, who was the epitome of worldly success. Here was a man who had everything. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that God has given this man wealth. Money, possessions, and honor. He has a flawless reputation. Verse 3 tells us that his ventures are not just profitable, but that he himself is fruitful. So he has over 100 children and lives 2,000 years. Again, this is, a, this is a hypothetical person that Solomon says, let's just say. And Solomon says, even if that were the case. Now keep in mind, the two things that established prominence and honor in the ancient Near East were a person's reputation and the number of children that he had. So Solomon says, this guy has it all. He has the reputation, he has the money, he has the fame, he has the children. And Solomon puts forth this man who, again, who who has it all. And yet in all this, his soul finds no enjoyment in life. He is completely unfulfilled. And here's the picture that Solomon's painting for us. In this broken and sin-cursed world, in this world corrupted by sin, life is going to have its ups and downs. It has its, its ebbs and its flows. There are periods in our life when everything seems to be clicking and things are going well and we're happy and our marriage is strong and our life is, our job is great and, and you know, we've, our health is good, our relationships, all of that stuff. And it seems like everything is going famously. But we can have all those things unless God also gives us the ability to enjoy them, Solomon says. It's all a waste. Who cares if we have everything but none of it brings us joy. Who cares if we have everything that this life offers, but we're not, we don't have the ability to enjoy it? This is what Solomon says in verse 1 of this chapter. It lies heavy on mankind. The reality that the things of this world can only satisfy for a while, but with no depth or no consistency. In the previous chapter, Ecclesiastes 5, I won't go back and read it, but Solomon says that God has placed eternity in our hearts which means that we actually know all along that there has to be more to this life than what's in front of us. There's more to this life than what we can see. We know there's something bigger than us. We know we should be able to find purpose and meaning, but that happiness is so elusive. And they have, we have those moments. Yes, we're super happy and everything is great. uh, But then we crash and we have sorrow and grief and, And we try to find satisfaction in more and more things. But we can never enjoy those things as long as we're at odds with our creator. How bad is our world? Well, it's so broken that no gift or pleasure under the sun will bring lasting happiness. Here's our first point. All the gifts in the world. Now think about how pertinent this is at Christmas time. All the gifts in the world will bring no real lasting joy. Unless we're able to delight in the giver, we could have everything, every gift under the sun. And unless we're able actually to delight in the one who's given those things to us, we'll have no real joy. We had, a, we had an unwritten rule in my home growing up as it relates to Christmas. Now, and I say unwritten, it was also unspoken. i never heard anybody say this out loud uh but we all knew my sister and I knew this was the case and that is the rule was this christmas gifts are just that they're gifts and so when you receive a gift there's only one appropriate response and that is thank you very much so if you didn't like it who cares right if it didn't fit who cares If it's not what you wanted, if it's not the style you, if it's not what you asked for, none of that stuff mattered. We just said, thank you. If you got something, your article of clothing, and it was three sizes too big, you just went with a baggy style, the baggy look. Um, If it was three sizes too small, you just squeezed in it. Because you did not say, we did not, you you know, after Christmas, you have all these long lines for the returns. You'd never see a Sloan in any return line. Because we just, you know, whatever it was, that's what we, we accepted. And um, we didn't make any, we never would never say, you know, well, this is not exactly what I was, what I had on my list. It's just not the way uh, that it worked. Um, well, now my mom was very good at giving. She's amazing at giving gifts. And so I, I typically uh, got what I wanted. I mean, she still is like that. But, but now there were occasions, there were occasions. I remember, uh, I think it was my senior year in high school. Um, Tommy Hilfiger was a brand new, uh, brand, you know, and I really wanted some Tommy Hilfiger jeans. Now we didn't have, we had hardly any money, no money, you know, very hardworking parents, but we had nothing. And, and I wanted these Tommy Hilfiger jeans. Now you couldn't, now you can get Tommy Hilfiger at Costco and Sam's, but you couldn't then you had to go to, a, you know, certain department stores. And so I asked for these jeans and, and, you know, it didn't re- whatever I got, I was going to accept and be happy with, but I, I opened my, I got my gift. I thought, Oh, this felt, it feels like jeans. And I opened it up, and just as I started to open up, I could tell right along the label around, around the waist, these are Tommy Hilfiger jeans. I couldn't believe it. But then, to my horror, when I opened up the rest of the box and I pulled out the jeans, they must have been on clearance because they had polka dots on the legs. <laughs> Both legs, fully, full, full light blue polka dots. So I got kind of what I asked for, but I didn't really have, have that in mind, um, the polka dots. But you know what I did? I can't say I ever wore them, but I kept them in my closet and I, and I acted like I loved them. Um, now, here's the thing. You know, we, we, we tend to think if I could just have that one thing, that one thing that I really, really want. If maybe it's a new car or it's a bigger house or it's new clothes or whatever it is. If I could just have these things, you know, then we think that's going to bring the happiness that I'm, I'm looking for. And a lot of times we don't get those things. But even if we do get those things, you know how short-lived that happiness is? You know, we're, we're excited about it and it's so great, you know, for a while. Maybe it's, for my kids, it's all about phones, you know. Every year, can we get a new phone? Whatever it is, yeah, okay, it's exciting for a minute. But there are no gifts that can satisfy what the soul really longs for. And that is to be loved by God to receive the forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt, true and lasting peace. Our world is so broken, we're so broken, that no gift or pleasure will satisfy our deepest longings. But just like Solomon, we think, well, if I could just try this, if I could just do this, if I could just have this. We'll try every equation under the sun. We try to fill our lives with pleasure, food, endless exercise routines, our career, but we're never satisfied. So what we think is, well, I got to listen to those self-help experts who talk about the self-actualization that I need. They they tell us what we need. You got to tap into your inner beauty and your inner strength and your inner goodness and just learn to accept yourself as you are and realize that deep down you're a really good person. So we say, well, I know I make mistakes every day and I I may get upset and I may hurt people, um, but at least my heart is right. You ever listen to a a public apology of like a professional athlete or a celebrity. It's, it's always comes back to that's not really who I am. That's not who I am. So we buy into this notion, but the deeper down we go and the more closer, the more closely we look, we see that things just get dirtier. And the more honest we are, we realize that our hearts are corrupt and our hearts have really, they've already committed sins. That our mouth, our mouth, and our hands haven't even gotten around to yet. Because that's where we are at the heart level. And the solution to this problem is not more stuff distracting our minds with food or pleasure or work or, or gifts or whatever it is. All that stuff's meaningless, meaningless. Those distractions just mask the real problem. Imagine how foolish it would be if a woman went to see her doctor. And it was discovered that she had stage four cancer. And the doctor said to her, Look, there is a cure for your disease. But my advice to you is just stop thinking about it. Just don't worry about it. Why are you fixating on it? Think about something else. Fill your life with things that will distract you. Take your mind off your cancer and go buy yourself something you've always wanted. Now, of course, we would say that's malpractice, right? That's, that's foolishness. Just like we need physicians who will give us an accurate diagnosis of the problem, we need the Word of God to tell us what our real problem is. And the Word of God tells us that the real problem is sin. The sin in our own hearts, the sin in our world. Sin is the reason that our world is so messed up. Sin is the reason our hearts are so selfish and unsatisfied Sin is a cancer, and it doesn't do us any good to sort of take our mind off of it and just think of other things and fill our minds with distractions. Okay, so what about just, you know, keeping our head down and and, and just trying to work harder and make something of ourselves in this cruel, broken world? Look at verses 7 through 10. Solomon says, "...all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied." For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man for who knows what is good for man where, while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow for who can tell what will be after him under the sun. So Solomon says, well, life under the sun, just a euphemism for just sort of this world that I can see this present life, this world, this earth. And Solomon says that life under the sun life, if this is all there is, and there's nothing else um, it's complete vanity. I mean, it's a waste of time. We work, we strive, we labor so that we can eat, so that we'll have the strength to work, so that we can sleep, so that we can get up and work again. And he said, but we're never satisfied with our work or with our sleep or with our food. And so, in this sense, it really doesn't matter if we're wise or a fool, he says. The wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, they're both equally disappointed with life when it's all said and done. At least, Solomon says in verse 8, the poor man recognizes there's a right way to live. Yet when it comes to satisfying his desire, the poor is better, no better off than the rich. One when, uh, when brilliant Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, writes, this is the depressing and uncertain finish well suited to the state of man on his own. And then when we do accomplish something, Solomon says, man finds out that everything that we have it's already, already been done. Everything we can come up with, it's already been done. It's already been named, he says. This is the culmination of a lot of angst on Solomon's part. He's expressed his frustration in chapters 1 through 5. And then we get to chapter 6. And he says, it's just the same old, same old until we get to a frightening and uncertain ending. There's nothing you can do that hasn't been done. There's nothing you can accomplish that someone else hasn't already accomplished and named. So not only will all the pleasures of the world not bring happiness... But neither, he says, will significance, making a name for ourselves. Here's our second point. The pursuit of significance is an empty set. We will only find lasting worth in a restored relationship with the one who made us. You know, there are a lot of preachers turn the Bible into a book of rules to live by and maybe, you know, principles for a better life, how to be a better husband or father or neighbor or worker or friend or whatever it is. And certainly there are, you know, there are wisdom principles in the Bible. There, there's wisdom literature, right? It's in there. And and yet there are people who want to make the Bible really about principles for money management or weight loss strategies and everything kind of comes back to the Bible, becoming a better business owner, whatever it is. But the Bible is actually not about any of those things necessarily. The Bible is a story of God's love for those who wanted nothing to do with him as demonstrated in the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible is the story of the gospel and every book points to Jesus, even Ecclesiastes. See the entire book of Ecclesiastes really comes down to this man's attempt to deal with the brokenness of the world and indeed his own brokenness. So that's, that's what it's all about. It's about man's attempt to deal with brokenness, man's efforts to gain relief from the wrath of God and the consequences of sin in the world. The book of Ecclesiastes forces us into one of two conclusions, really. So you read the book and you're really forced to to go in one direction. Either one, either nothing matters at all. So you just kind of, you know, live life to the most pleasurable extreme. Nothing matters. There is no God. There's nothing after this. We all die and go into the ground. And so what's the point? So that's one conclusion. Nothing matters. Or the other conclusion is everything matters because there actually is a God who is king, who is holy, who is sovereign, who will judge every word and every action before whom every even motive is laid bare. And there is a God who stands above this messed up world, who is holy and pure. And here we are as broken people. We need someone to stand between us and that God. We need someone to reconcile us to that God, the God from whom we are alienated, We need someone who can restore that broken relationship. All the gifts in the world, all the financial success in the world, all the achieving in the world cannot reconcile us to the God who made us. So Ecclesiastes actually points us to the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that because of Christ, we are forgiven. We are brought back to God and we are made sons and daughters of God who now live with meaning and purpose and fulfillment and a a relationship with the God who made us. As you've heard me say before, the gospel is not the announcement that if we do certain things, we will be loved, accepted and received and forgiven by God. That's actually bad news. If that was the gospel, if you do these things, these certain things, you'll be received by God. That's very bad news because we can never actually do all the things that God requires. But actually the gospel is the good news that because of what Jesus has done, we are loved, accepted, received, and forgiven by faith alone. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're more than just significant in terms of what your peers may think about you. You are actually loved by God. You are actually a friend of God. You are clean. You are holy. You've been cleansed. You've been made new. And actually, God delights in you. I mean, talk about significance. The creator of the world actually delights in you. God has taken your sin, if you've trusted in Jesus, and he put your sin on Jesus on the cross. And he's actually taken Jesus' righteousness And he's put it on you. He's credited it to you. So that really changes everything. The gospel changes everything we do. It changes the way that we live with other people. changes our marriages, our parenting, our vocation, our career, our goals. And certainly keeps us uh, from what Jerry Bridges calls the good day, bad day type of thinking. You know, if I have a good day and I don't fall into sin and I resist that temptation and I don't give into addiction and I don't give in to my struggles, then God loves me. But if I have a bad day where I do give in to temptation, I do say something I wish I wouldn't have, and I do something I wish I could take back, and God doesn't love me, the gospel actually cures us of that. The gospel reminds me that in Christ, I am the treasure of the living God. What could could never be accomplished by my hard work or social climbing, God has made me to be that is truly significant, loved by him. So when we rest in the grace of God, we can enjoy life. Something impossible for God's enemies to do. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. Solomon says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. Who's the one stronger than he? This is a reference to the Lord, the creator. Solomon has in the back of his mind because he walked so closely with the Lord for all those years. This is a reference to the creator king. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon says in verses 10 and 11 everything that is come has already been done, there's already a name for it. And by arguing with God, the one stronger, We never actually advance our case. We don't really accomplish anything. We never sort of bend God to our will. We never sort of persuade God that we're worthy of his approval. The more we talk to God, the more we realize we have nothing to say, really, at least nothing uh, persuasive or important. We can try to tell God what he ought to do. And we can try to tell God the way things ought to be and the way that we believe things should happen. But his ways always prove wiser than ours. In fact, the more we talk, the emptier our words sound. So instead of arguing with God, we're, we're much better served by simply trusting that what he does, he does out of love for us. And I know for some of you, maybe you've, you've had just a horrible week. And it's been one of those things where you're just like, why? Why this? Why that? Why did that have to happen? And I, I know, I mean... It's hard, and there are so many things that we, that we don't have explanations for. We, we don't know why they happen. But one of the things that Ecclesiastes does, and I realize we're just sort of parachuting into one chapter, but it helps us to understand the foolishness of us trying to tell God the way things ought to be. Or of us trying to assign impure motives to God. Or believing that life would be better without God. We simply trust, yeah, I don't understand this, and this really hurts, and I hate this, but I have to believe that you're sovereign and good, and I have to believe that what's happened to me this week and this month and last year, it really is from the hand of a loving God who is really in control over all things. You know, we might be inclined to think that, I think it's easy to to think that now is like the worst time, you know, to ever live in the sense that things are just more confusing and more crazy and wilder than they've ever been. In fact, the lady said to me not long ago that she and her new husband were were contemplating not having children. Because she said, I just can't even fathom bringing children into this world. I mean, I look at the things that are going on. She said, "I, I can't even imagine what, if we had kids, what our kids would have to go through. Well, as much as I, I mean, I understand on some level, you know, what what she's thinking. The wickedness in our world is nothing new at all. It's always been that way since the fall of Adam and Eve. It is a characteristic of a world that has rejected Christ. And this is the way, again, the world has been since Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. The world awaits redemption. The world, as we saw in our study through Romans, it groans, waiting to be rescued from the effects of sin. One of the things I love about Christmas songs and even the songs that we sang this morning is just how rich the theology is. It's easy to sing these songs, but you know, we, we, we've sung them so many years and together and maybe a thousand times to really not realize what we're singing. I mean, but think about the depths of some of the lyrics like we sang today, O come, O come, em- O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? O come thou rod of Jesse free. Thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save. And give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Or think about the beauty and the theological depth of O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. To pine for something just means to want it so badly. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Virtually every Christmas song, you know, especially the songs of old, talk about the hopelessness and the brokenness of our world and how what our world needs and what our world longs for is a redeemer, a rescuer. Well, the beauty of Christmas is that God in Christ has sent that rescuer who will not simply enter this broken world, but who's come to fix it. He came not just to be born, but to die, to pay the penalty for our sins. He came to save us from our own sin and to reconcile the entire world to himself, the entire cosmos. This is why the Christmas songs implore us to rejoice, even though we look around, things may not be that great. The first advent, the birth of Jesus, which brings salvation and marks the dawning of a new age, will lead to the second advent, the return of Jesus. And even though no one knows the day or the time or when that will happen, it is just as certain as the rising of the sun. How do we know that? Because Christ has come. How do we know that Jesus will come again? Because he came the first time. Here's our final point. Jesus came to set right all that is wrong with our world. Most importantly, the schism that exists between man and God. You know what a schism is? A schism is a split, a division between two strongly opposed parties. You know, sometimes when we sing these, you know, not every Christmas song is good, of course, in terms of lyrically or the- theologically, but we talk about, you know, Santa loving all God's children. Well, okay, if by that, or if by God's children, you mean everyone who's created by God, sure, but... The thing is, it's not as though, you know, God is up in heaven doing his thing and we're down here on earth doing our own thing and we're all, you know, right with God and we're all restored and we just, you know, no, actually we are living, every person apart from Christ is living in opposition to God. And I can even go so far as to say in violent opposition to God. There's been a schism that has happened between us and God and it's, It happened when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and sent our world spiraling into chaos and everything would be tainted by sin. It's why our relationships are not what they should be or not what we want them to be. It's why we don't do the things we want to do. It's why we don't think the things we want to think, you know, and as Paul would say in Romans 7 again, it's why we we do all the things we don't want to do and all the things we know we should do, we don't do. It's because sin has affected us, infected us. We're not just apart from God in the sense that he's there and we're here. We're actually at odds with God. We are enemies of God apart from Christ with no hope in our own of being reconciled. But, and this is why Christmas, this is why we rejoice. This is why we put up lights. This is why we party. This is why we celebrate. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to free those who were under the law. Jesus came to free us. From the burden of the law. It doesn't mean we don't obey God now. It's now the law no, no longer condemns us. God doesn't say, well, you didn't do A, B, C, D, E, and F, and so you're forever condemned. No, God says, "Look, oh, you put your faith in my son, so his obedience is your obedience. Your sin has actually been put on him. Jesus came to make all things right. He came to bring peace. Before he would bring peace on the earth, which he will ultimately bring total shalom He would make it possible for man to be at peace with God. He would live the life that Adam and Eve were supposed to live, but failed as they entered into a covenant with him before God. He would live the life of complete obedience that you and I were created to live, but have totally failed to do. And he would die on the cross for our sins. As theologian Michael Horton says, the gospel is not that Jesus lives in our heart. It is that he lived for us, died for us, rose for us, reigns for us, and will return for us at the end of the age. That's actually a lot better news than Jesus living in our hearts. As I mentioned at the outset, Ecclesiastes, you know, it seems like a strange place to go for an Advent series. And you're still, maybe you're still thinking, yeah, that was kind of odd. Because it's, of course, filled with depressing and heart-crushing language. Clear evidence of the darkness of our world. But the darkness of the world, indeed, the darkness in our own hearts, is meant to drive us to the light of Christ. When we see the despair in our world, all of it caused by sin, it's meant to drive us to the one who is the light, who can reconcile us to God, who can make us right and forgive us and cleanse us and make us new, and the one who can and will ultimately Make everything right as he will reconcile all things to God. Is that what you're trusting in this morning? As you get caught up in the season, and yeah, I'm right there with you. I've got a Christmas list myself of things I want. you know. But you think about all those things. Is that wh- Where is our hope in this season? Is it in just the fact that we can feel good and maybe be distracted? Or are we really trusting in the one that God sent, the true light of the world? the Savior who was born to die so that we could be right with God. Let's pray.